6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 49 through 51. When they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thy house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and the Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. <laughs> David's, got, David's got a problem. David said to Uriah, tarry here today, also and tomorrow, and I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and tomorrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And he, at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Can you, you begin to realize the king's frustration? It came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. This is a sealed letter, obviously. Sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. So he's arranging with his, 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 the commander of his army to make sure that Uriah is a casualty. That's basically what's happening here. Do you see the sins compounding? Obviously, he's, gonna, he's guilty of murder of Uriah. He's also entangling Joab into dishonesty. See, these things multiply. It came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war to the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he said unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye not nigh or near the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That's the point that Joab wants to get back to the king. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. The messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, 
there's a lot of speculation because what's going to follow here in chapter 13 may have been a substantial period of time later. But during that interval, what do you think it was like for David? He, on the one hand, thought he was getting away with it, and at the same time, it's destroying his life. Bathsheba herself was apparently a pretty sharp gal, because the history bears that out. Uh, she was very skillful at obtaining the object of her ambitions in the palace over the following years. Uh, she was very quick and prompt in disclosing her problem to the king. That's very straightforward. Her activity in defeating Adonijah later on, under, uh, uh, he, he uh, tries to take the throne. And she, uh, with Nathan, head that off. They're, very, they're really on their toes to uh, prevent, Adonijah is trying to prevent Solomon from gaining the throne. And her own son's succession, namely Solomon to the throne, she engineered that. And uh, she had ter terrific dignity as the king's mother. She wrote uh, the 31st chapter of Proverbs, which is her intimate counsel to her son by his uh, intimate name, Lemuel. Um, so she acquits, aside from the, that event, her history acquits herself as a very able person. But let's go on to chapter 12. This is where David gets rebuked. The chapter follows chapter 11, but we don't know what the interval of time might have been. That interval of time between the two could be rather taxing. And the one that takes the initiative is not David. It's the Lord who sent Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. This isn't Nathan the son. There will be later a son of David called Nathan. This is No, this is Nathan the prophet. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came unto him, said unto him, tells him a story. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. In other words, it's a pet. Okay? Was unto him as a daughter. There came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Here's this poor man, the only thing he's got, the rich man took it for dinner. Can you visualize David hearing the story and starting to get angry? David's anger was greatly kindled against that man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Can you visualize the scene? Nathan's put this story on the table and David is incensed. And then we have one of the bravest moves by a person in the Bible. Nathan says to King David, Thou art the man. And then he continues. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. 
Bear in mind, Nathan is talking to the king. The king would have to do nothing but frown, and his cohorts would put Nathan to death. He's insulting the king. Nathan has really crawled out on a limb. We need to understand the dynamics here. Thus saith the Lord God, and he gives us the charge. Thou art the man. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with thy sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. This is God speaking through Nathan to, 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 to David. The sword shall never depart from thine house. And indeed, the whole history of David is a tragic, tragic family history of, of, of uh, sexual abuses and murder and rebellion. And it, 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 it's, uh, it's a vivid, vivid fulfillment of this assertion by the Lord through David. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Indeed, Absalom does that very public dishonoring of the king in that very way. Later. Now, to David's credit, confronted with this, David makes no apology, makes no denial. He stands up. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He sinned against a lot of others, too. But the critical one, the most critical one, let's put it that way, isn't Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab or any of these other things or the city of or the nation, which he's all, he sinned against all of them, really, by this behavior. You know, a man in his position can't sin privately. We had a president that disgraced the office of the president that we've probably never recovered from. No, I have sinned against the Lord, David says. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. He is, after all, the king... So that, they, that won't happen. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Interesting phrase. We hear this a lot. You know, when, when you do something against God, when you, when you disgrace your calling uh, uh, as a God-fearing person, you create an occasion for the enemies of God, uh, enemies of God to blaspheme. Blasphemy is bringing railing accusation. It's an equivalent term. And uh, we often overlook that. When you see a very prominent Christian uh, personage fall from grace by some public disgrace, the injury that he does to the image of God in the minds of the unbelieving is part of the sin, a very serious part of the sin. We're all on parade. We need to know that. We need to understand that. We'll do it imperfectly, but we need to understand that. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. 
David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. It came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, he spake unto them, and he would not hearken unto her voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? Then, you know, they think it's going to be worse. It's going to be just the other way around. When David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, he washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. While he was ill, he fasted and all that. But once the child died, cleaned up, business as usual, went back to work. And the servants were surprised. And they said to the servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. He said, very important verse for us to understand. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now that he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And it's on this verse that many theologians argue this is a proof that children are saved because he will be with his child. That same argument can be advanced. I shall go to him. He says here, in the New Testament, in the in law school, as we call it, Romans 7, Paul tells us, without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, I, sin revived and I died. When you analyze this uh, 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 structure, grammatically and the rest, there's a time that Paul was saved before the law was operative. For I was alive, and he's using the term of being saved here, I was alive without the law, outside the law, once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. As you analyze this, the only thing, you, the only thing that fits the situation is that, that Paul is talking about his, before he was at the age of accountability. So again, theologically, theologians will build their case on these two verses that a child is saved. I happen to agree with that, but I want to point out that's not free of controversy. Some people argue different things, you know, but, but uh, be that as it may. Let's get back to uh, 2 Samuel 12. And David comforted Bathsheba's wife and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son and called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So Solomon has several names. And uh, Now David's wives and son, okay, he had obviously Michael, Saul's daughter, way back in the beginning, but nothing came of that, as you probably know. Hinoam uh, uh, gave, gave birth to Ammon, who's going to be trouble too. Abigail, that was Nabal's widow, that whole story, had a son in Gilead. Machah, the king of Asher, had Absalom. Absalom leads a rebellion later. The wife of Hegith had Adonijah. Then Abital had another son, and Eglah had another son. Bathsheba comes along, wife of Uriah. Her first surviving son, first one died, the first surviving son with Solomon. Her second surviving son is a son by the name of Nathan. Matthew builds his genealogy on Solomon, the legal heir to the throne. Luke, the doctor, takes the bloodline from Nathan. to every, Prior to them both, they're identical, the genealogies in both Gospels. But from Nathan on, it goes to Mary, 
whose father adopts Joseph as a son. And uh, there's a great study there. We're going to get into it. There are a bunch of other sons of David that are mentioned we don't know much about. The two of the important ones are Absalom and Adonijah. They both rebel in various ways. Absalom is the most serious of the two. And we'll come more to that later. That's why I'm highlighting it here. Okay, so having that historical background refreshed in our mind, let's take a look at Psalm 51, which clearly is written uh, in, uh, of, of, this, of David's repentance. It has three major parts. The cry of his conscience and his conviction of sin, the first three verses. His cry of confession of sin and appeal for clemency. And a cry for cleansing and communication. So it's in three sections. Now, let's remember that these superscriptions on your psalms are part of the inspired record. Many people overlook that. They think this is just some kind of editorial comment. No, it's generally regarded by most scholars that that's part of the psalm. To the chief musician, the psalm of David, obviously. And it tells you what the occasion was. So there are several places like this where it is expressed as to what the historical occasion was that gave rise to the song. That doesn't limit its application. It just gives you a sense of the context here. Because this not only applies to David in his situation, it may apply to every one of us in a number of ways. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, this is the occasion. And here's David's psalm that he composed. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So that's David's plea, and the reason this is so dear to all of us, that needs to be our plea also. There's not one of us in this room that aren't in need of essentially the same kind of confession and appeal to the judge of the universe. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Now, transgressions is to step over. Transgressions is to step over the boundaries that God may have set up. The word iniquity is that which is just altogether wrong. And the word sin, I'll explain here in a little bit. The important thing here, first, this first step, is that David admitted it. He owned it. He was not in denial. He confesses it. And in, in verse 2 and 3... The word for sin in the Hebrew is shatah, which is, means that like a, it, a word like for sin offering. In verse 4, it's a similar word, but in the Septuagint, in the, when translated in the Greek, they use the term hamatur, which is to miss the mark. And that's where usually the old English term for sin is like an archery term, missing the mark. And uh, so, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That is the theme of this whole psalm. It needs to be the theme of our lives. We need to understand the reality here. The word uh, for uh, sin here is kata, which is a sin or like sin offering. And uh, the Greek translation, three centuries before Christ's ministry in the Greek, uh, is the word from which we get the word sin. Uh, it, it's an archer to, to miss the mark, to miss the So that's the first three verses. Now we're going to go to the cry of confession of sin and appeal for clemency. David goes on and says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight? Thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And uh, 
This is a tough one because many people say, gee, wait a minute, what do you mean? He sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, indeed. They're all gone now. The critical one that eclipses all of that is God himself that he sinned against. Not demeaning the others, but that's the one he's focusing on here. Romans 3.23, most popular verse, should be in our list of memory verses. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is in the same shoes as David. Sin against whom? Against Bathsheba? Of course. What could she do? He was king. Against Uriah, her husband? Of course. He was murdered by deceit, skullduggery. Against Joab, by even involving him in this tryst and the rest. Against his family. I always get a, I'm always amused by these discussions among some attorneys about victimless crimes. There's no crime that's victimless. All kinds, you, you, you are sinning against anyone that loves you when you sin. Most of all, God himself. It's against the community of Jerusalem. He was king. It's a sin against the community of Jerusalem. President Clinton, what he did to this country and the nation is absolutely irreparable. Against the nation in which he was king, but the real issue that eclipses all of this is against God himself because he's the ultimate judge. And this is a sin against God, especially the way God had blessed David. And the way God has blessed every one of us in this room. Two things we need to really be guarded against. Ingratitude and presumption. Subtle, but deadly. David continued, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Doesn't mean that it was sin that caused him to be birthed. He means he's born in sin, he's born with it. We, you and I have a genetic defect. Not that we're HIV positive, we're SIN positive. Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. There's no one that doesn't sin. Proverbs 30, there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Everybody thinks they're doing all right. Not so. In Romans 3.23, that's probably the key of them all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can find, we could concatenate probably another dozen verses that hammer the same thing all through, all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The sin nature... Samuel Johnson said, every man knows that of himself which he dares not tell his dearest friend. Well, if the character is what you are when no one's looking. <laughs> Seneca said, we must say of ourselves that we are evil, have been evil, and unhappily, I must add, shall also be in the future evil. Nobody can deliver himself. Someone must stretch out a hand to lift him up. This is not a new idea. Continuing in Psalm 51, David says, Behold, speaking to God, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. What's really going on the inside, not the outside appearances, what's really going on in the heart. And then this critical verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. You know, you get the impression that David's coming from a very hard place. It's not like he was really comfortable. He really thought he'd gotten away with it. He's coming out of a time of huge depression. Whatever the interval was between the sin and being confronted by Nathan, it was an agonizing time of covering up. You get the impression that David... It was not easy. It, not like he thought he'd gotten, really thought he'd gotten away with it. He knew he had, 
he, he, he was torn up. A Christian cannot be comfortable in his sin. Purge me with hyssop. What do we mean by hyssop? Well, if we go to Exodus 34, the, uh, God says in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by, speak to Moses here, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. So God is a just God. That will by no means clear the guilty. He can't just pardon without it being paid for. That's the point. Socrates even recognized the paradox that's presented here. It may be that God can forgive sin, but I don't see how. That was Socrates' insight. If you've got a just God, it's got to be someone's got to pay for it. You can't ignore it. Hyssop is the biblical term we see it all through the Bible. It's a a hyssop is probably marjoram or it's a, a herb that has a little hairy. It's the kind of thing you can, it, it's useful for sprinkling things on. It was used to apply the blood to the doorposts during Passover. I want you to notice how hyssop is in the Bible always associated with the sprinkling of blood. It applied the blood to the doorpost during Passover. When in Leviticus, Leviticus 14, where they're dealing with the cleansing of a leopard, he had two birds. One was sawed, the blood of the one was put on the other, and it was turned loose. The picture of the resurrection and the, and the shed blood and so forth. One dipped the blood of the other and, and was released, but what was split, the blood was sprinkled with the hyssop. Numbers 19, where the ashes of the red heifer was applied, it was with hyssop. And uh, Hebrews 9.19, it was used to sprinkle the blood on vessels and all the way through. It's a summary verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 9. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music